Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. Tax Reform 2.0 to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services Leader. You can watch these podcasts on YouTube at youtube.com slash Doug McConey. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're back in Westminster Studios in St. Louis, Missouri, where I'm excited to have Callum Dewar back on the podcast. Callum is an international tax partner in PwC's Washington National Tax Service office and the leader of our integrated global structuring practice, heading our outbound, inbound, and value chain transformation teams. Callum spent the first 20 plus years of his career working in the UK. Callum, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So Callum, before we begin, we're at the end of another American football season. When you came to the U.S. permanently about 10 years ago, and, and I am mindful, we've pretty much let everybody know your age, um, for those astute with math uh, on the pod, listening to the podcast. But when you moved to, to, to New York, you adopted the New York Jets as your team and, and even got season tickets. I just wanted to check in. How do you feel about the Jets' four-win season this year? Any predictions? And uh, are you still going to hang on to the Jets as your adopted team? Well, in my defense, I actually picked the Jets in 1993 when I came on Common the first time. Okay. Um, so, and they weren't quite as bad then as they are now. Um, I mean, they weren't great, but they were as bad. Um, yeah, I'm a firm believer, if you pick a team, you pick a team, you don't change just because someone else is better. Um, so I'm sticking with the Jets. Um, this season was one more win than last season. Right. Um, we keep getting high draft picks at some point by the law of average. We, we, we'll, we'll pick someone good. Um, well, you know, I, I saw a report on the TV the other day said they're going to be great next season. All right. I think it was sponsored by the Jets. but I'm but, sure it was. But but I will remind you, Calum, I was a fan <clears throat> of a losing NFL team for a couple decades. We, we did have a Super Bowl here in St. Louis in 99. But I'll, I'll be honest, at this point, I would certainly take a four-win NFL team in St. Louis than no team at all. Uh, albeit the, the city of St. Louis now is $750 million less attorney's fees richer after the lawsuit that was recently settled. But uh, at least you have a team. Right. Actually, a couple still in New York. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, so let's get into the topic at hand. So, Callum, the end of 2021 was a busy time for tax authorities and a busy time for those of us as advisors and tax practitioners reading hundreds of pages of releases during the last couple weeks of December. Um, So in this podcast, we're going to talk about the Pillar 2 model rules, also referred to as the Global Anti-Base Erosion or GLOBE rules, which were released on December 20th, 2021. Mm -hmm. I'll also note, we'll get to that the EU issued a a directive similarly related to this um, a couple days later. So maybe you can just start with a little bit of the process. I know we're still waiting. We've got some detail from these rules. We're waiting for a couple of other additional pieces of guidance. And then also help us a little understand effective dates before we jump into some of the substantive proposals. Right. So um, the model rules on Pillar 2, as you say, were published just before Christmas. They set out the, the framework of how the rules will operate, how they interact, uh, the mechanics of the relevant parts of the calculation. Um, the OECD inclusive framework had, had promised they would be released with some guidance notes explaining how the rules applied and giving examples, etc., as they've done with other uh, BEPS uh, mm-hmm. programs before. 
Um, but obviously it became clear b- before the release of the model rules that the guidance notes weren't going to be released at the same time. They had been promised in January. I think we're now hearing it's more likely to be February before we see guidance notes. I, I'm not really expecting those guidance notes to necessarily move us forward very far. Um, they generally you know, give guidance by reference to black and white examples of how the rules work. And unfortunately, most of us operate in the world of grey. So the black answer or the white answer isn't actually helping us with most of our fact profiles. But, you know, we'll wait and see what they actually include. Mm -hmm. That is meant to be followed by later this year, the implementation framework, which is the OECD intending to write draft legislative language for how to implement these rules and that will be obviously uh, very helpful Um, but it's worth pointing out that whatever the OECD releases isn't legislation right Um, it is countries that legislate and countries can faithfully follow the OECD language or they can depart from it or they can have interpretations of it so we're we're some ways away from knowing exactly what the rules are going to say by reference to each jurisdiction. Right, and a prior performance is indicative of future results, what we saw from the kind of BEPS, BEPS 1.0. Yeah. Jurisdictions took, uh, you know, many different jurisdictions took many different approaches to, to the mechanics of the rules. I think that's right. I mean, we, you know, the biggest example, obviously, is the hybrid rules. Mm-hmm. Those hybrid rules, you know, largely followed similar language in implementation in a lot of jurisdictions, although some jurisdictions departed meaningfully from them but it's actually the interpretation of the rules that generally gives to different results across jurisdictions so we're going to have that I think going forward as well. So so maybe then we can move to well, what is we have the income inclusion rule which I well think, maybe I'll just touch on timing as please. well there because I, I, you know the, the OECD have set a extremely aggressive timetable um, with application of the income inclusion rule which we'll come to in a minute mm-hmm. by 1st of January 2023 and the application of the under tax payment rule which again we'll get into in a bit more detail by 1st of January 2024 they are aggressive timetables by anyone's uh, definition um, the EU directive which you mentioned in the opening follows a similar timetable so again the EU is looking for an implementation 1st of January 23 and 1st of January 24, again, a pretty aggressive timetable. So we will see how the timetable works. Um, That's currently the working timetable. But at the end of the day, as I said, this requires a legislative process. And for example, Mm. the UK issued a consultation document earlier this week, and they're already slipping the timetable by three months because the UK legislative process generally has a finance bill in February time, February, March time. And so they're looking for a 1st of April 2023 and 1st of April 24 implementation date. So we'll see what everyone else does. And, and I will remind listeners, like you have constantly reminded me, that the EU, that the UK is no longer in the EU. It's no longer in the EU. So they will be, they will be subject to their own timetable. But I'll, I'll, just as a quick follow-up on the EU and mm. specifically the timing there, there, there have been a, a couple of holdouts, right? We've heard and, and some some comments from finance ministries, including Ireland, and I mm. think we have Cyprus, and then we know Hungary has got a, a significantly lower rate of 9% compared to the minimum of 15 
Tell us a little bit about that and uh, um, just some of the language that was in the, the the beginning of the EU directive, which implied that everybody was on board, even though not everybody seemed like they were on board. Well, so, I mean, the, the first important point is an EU directive requires unanimity amongst the 27 member states. So a directive cannot be passed without unanimous agreement by all member states, um, you know, unless they change the EU law enacting that which requires unanimous approval to change the law so you're kind of in the same place um you know the eu in their directive opening language said that they fully expect that everyone will agree to this directive they pointed out that all but one of the member states had signed up to the inclusive framework if you recall ireland held out for some time but then effectively came on board and signed the political agreement issued by the inclusive framework Hungary did the same albeit with some noises around transition rules etc etc mm-hmm. the one country that didn't actually sign was Cyprus and the commentary in the EU directive is they fully expect them to come on board so you know the EU at least public relations rhetoric is this will be agreed unanimously albeit I think they've got a little bit of work to do to get everyone on board the way they want to get them on board. Yeah, and and again, kind of looking at the past again, you know, I think many of us, when we saw BEPS 1.0, the the anti-hybrid rules, the interest limitation rules, I think a number of us assumed that certain jurisdictions may hold out and not be able to get unanimous consent. And obviously we know what happened there, that everybody got in line. And there's obviously significant political pressure in each of these respective countries that would seem reasonable to assume that that everyone will get in line here. And, And I think, you know, when we get into the rule construct, you'll see why actually holding out probably doesn't do you much good at the end of the day. The taxes will be collected and the question then becomes, well, who's going to get the tax revenue? Right. So perfect transition. <clears throat> let's uh, let's move into what I think we can refer to as the IIR, which is the income inclusion rule. We've got lots of acronyms here like we do elsewhere in tax. And then the UTPR, which is the under tax payment rule. Can you talk a little bit about just the mechanics of the, the calculation and how, do that, how does that work? So the, the, the calculation, um, before we get into sort of the, how it gets collected, which is the IR and the UTPR, the, the, the mechanics of the calculation, I think, are an important starting point, which is the whole aim of these rules is to identify low-tax jurisdictions and where you've identified a low tax jurisdiction, which effectively means an effective tax rate of less than 15%, the aim of the income inclusion rule and the under tax payment rule is between them to ensure that the tax that is less than 15% is topped up to 15%. Mm-hmm. That's the basic construct. Um, we can get into a bit more detail of how you calculate an effective tax rate. But the idea is once you've done that calculation, you've identified the low tax jurisdictions, then the first rule that's meant to apply is an income inclusion rule. And that works from the top down. So you look at the ultimate parent entity. So in the context of a US multinational, that would be the US parent. Mm -hmm. In the context of a UK multinational, that would be the UK parent. And if they've implemented an income inclusion regime that is compliant with the OECD proposals, then they get to implement the top-up tax under the income inclusion regime. 
And the basic construct there is the ultimate parent looks at all the subsidiaries, direct or indirect, works out which jurisdictions have got a lower than 15% effective tax rate, and then levies a charge on the parent entity effectively to collect that tax. And that's referred to as the ultimate parent entity. That's the ultimate parent entity. Now, they've then worked out, well, obviously group structures often have intermediate holding companies all the way down. So you may have an ultimate parent entity in a jurisdiction which holds some or all of the group through an entity in another jurisdiction, et cetera, et cetera, all the way down. Mm -hmm. So there's a cascading income inclusion rule starts off with the ultimate parent entity. If the ultimate parent entity hasn't implemented the rules, then the next holding company jurisdiction down gets to effectively collect the low tax income tax burden on the top up tax all the way down through the chain. And there are rules for partial ownership and split ownership and all those sort of things. So the income inclusion regime, which is the primary rule within the framework works from the top down and then the backup to that is if the top-up tax has not been fully collected the top-up tax that's been calculated as owing has not been fully collected through the income inclusion regime operation then the backup is the under tax payment rule now that that's a interesting approach mm-hmm. um, differs significantly from where um, the the blueprints of mm-hmm. earlier last year positioned it. Um, and I think the key point here is the word payment should be ignored in the definition of an undertax payment rule, and we'll get to that in a minute. But the basic idea of the undertax payment rule is to say, if you're in a group, a multinational group, and you're a jurisdiction that's implemented these rules... If there's another low-tax entity within the group, low-tax jurisdiction within the group, where the top-up tax has not been collected through the income inclusion regime, you, that jurisdiction that's implemented the rules, and every other jurisdiction that's implemented the rules gets the right to collect that tax by reference to a split between the jurisdictions that have implemented based on employees and tangible fixed assets. So effectively what that's doing is saying, look, if the jurisdiction hasn't done anything itself to up the tax from low tax, and the parent jurisdictions haven't done anything to up the low tax, then the policing mechanism will be everyone else who's implemented these rules gets the right to collect that top-up tax without reference to connectivity between the activities of the jurisdictions that enacted the rules and the low-tax jurisdiction. So go back to the blueprint, the idea seemed to be that if you were a high-tax jurisdiction and you made a payment to the low-tax jurisdiction, hence the under-tax payment rule language, then that payment that went to the low-tax entity could be denied, adjusted, to try and get back to a a sensible level of tax, an agreed level of tax. That, me- that mechanism has now been dropped, and now it's just, if you are a high-tax jurisdiction that's implemented the under-tax payment rules into your legislation, and there's low-tax profits anywhere in the group that have not been collected through the income inclusion regime, you that jurisdiction get to pick up your share of that low-tax income without reference to connectivity at all. 
And that's by suggested in the paper by a mechanism where you can deny deductions, and they're not deductions that are payments to the low tax entity, they're any deductions. So right. deductions to third parties, deductions for employee costs, deductions for anything, and or any other mechanism that gives a substantially similar result. So potentially a deemed income inclusion number as opposed to a denial of a deduction. So there's no connectivity at all. And I think that's the biggest shift in, in the framework from where the blueprint was to where we are now is that by adopting that mechanism, the framework effectively says, all I need is one jurisdiction to implement these rules in relation to a multinational group structure and I'm effectively in a position of policing the low taxed income. Okay, so I'm gonna give you an example because mm -hmm. this this one, this was the hardest thing for me to wrap my head around as I was going through this proposal because I was still, to your point, so fixed on, well, where's the undertaxed payment? Mm -hmm. So imagine that we have a US parented company and then mm -hmm. let's say hypothetically, and we'll get into this a little bit more later, that the US does not have an IIR compliance. Mm -hmm. So let's assume that the Build Back Better dies, we don't end up with country by country and we do not have an IIR compliant. Mm -hmm. And then let's assume that US multinational operates in three jurisdictions, let's say the UK, Germany and China. Mm -hmm. Let's assume also that the UK and Germany have adopted these rules and then and they're effectively paying close to the statutory rate, right? And we'll talk to some of the mechanics and deferreds and yeah. some of the, 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 the complexities associated with the calculation. But so we've got kind of full rate in the UK and Germany and then let's assume China, there's some incentive, some mm. technology incentive, right? So that we're paying a low amount of, of, of effective rate that the effective rate calculation results in, let's say a 5% effective right. rate. Yeah. So explain to me then, so what, what you're saying is that the UK and Germany then could effectively impose a tax on those under tax, on that undertaxed amount in China. Yeah, they can adjust the tax computation of the UK and German entities in such a way that UK and Germany between them are picking up the 10% top-up tax that would be imposed on China. Even if China is not selling right. or trading in any way at all with the UK and Germany. Yeah, and intentionally didn't say there were any royalty payments, Nothing. no interest payments. China's not necessarily selling to the UK or yep. Germany. Yep. And... Uh, and, and that rule, the, the income inclusion rule, is effective for January 1st, 2023. Well, it's effective for when, by when countries implement it. The timetable is 1st of January Fair enough. And then the, the UTPR, they're still a, a, a year later than that. And so, uh, again, within the timetable. Within the timetable. And so the issue is, is before that backstop rule comes in, and we'll talk again, we'll get a little bit more to this, is that if the IIR applies and if the U.S. does not have a compliant regime, then they'll need to look at those intermediary holding companies, yeah. for example. Yeah. And I think that maybe the next bit of the equation um, is the calculation right. of the effective tax rate, which... And um, maybe we start with just the calculation in general before yeah. we get to the, the... Well, the calculation in general is relatively logical mm -hmm. um it it says you've got to find the relative the appropriate income per entity and the appropriate amount of tax taxes per entity mm -hmm. and then the effective tax rate uh, sticker alert here is is the taxes divided by the income right that's the effective tax rate okay now 
That is then aggregated on a jurisdictional basis. So you start off at an entity basis, entity being a company, a branch, a partnership, in certain cases, hybrid entities. So each entity is done separately, but then you aggregate the results on a jurisdictional basis, which does mean that, for example, you know, losses in one entity in a jurisdiction that are being used in a consolidation regime to offset other profits are being blended in the calculation. Mm -hmm. So there is blending, but only on a jurisdictional basis. Right. I think the biggest challenge in the calculation is, as a practical matter, is the calculation is being derived from data <clears throat> that I think in most cases does not readily exist. Mm -hmm. um, and that is because they've defined the income line as being the financial statement income calculated under the gap of the ultimate parent entity with numerous adjustments, some of which make complete sense. So they've adjusted out for dividends, they've adjusted out for participation capital gains, but then they've adjusted for other matters such as FX differences and things that go through OCI and a whole host of adjustments to the income item, which I don't think any multinational will have that data mm -hmm. to hand. Even if they did have entity level data, which a lot of people don't keep data that way from a financial accounting perspective, they look at it consolidated, consolidated or mm -hmm. by business line or right. whatever. Um, they don't generally push gap down to those individual entities uh, unless it's required under local statutory accounts. And if it is required under local statutory accounts, that's normally a different gap than the gap right. of the parent. So there's a whole host of data mining adjustment exercises to do to get to the income number. And that's called the adjusted net global income. That's the that's adjusted net that. global income, mm -hmm. um, globe income. And then that is, de that is the denominator in a calculation which then has the covered taxes mm -hmm. as, as the numerator. Now, covered taxes is again a very complicated calculation which again, most of our clients won't have the data for. It starts off with the current taxes for that entity for the current year. And that's a number that I think we, you would be able to find, mm -hmm. I think, in most people's accounting systems fairly easily. But because the OECD wanted to make sure that timing differences didn't skew the numbers either for or against a company, they then concluded the right way to deal with timing differences was to include the deferred tax charge or credit for the year, but with significant adjustments to the deferred tax number. And so there are requirements to change basis numbers for purposes of amortization calculations, for purposes of calculating the timing difference on amortization, there's a cap on deferred taxes uh, on balances brought forward, where if you're in a jurisdiction like France with a 28% corporate tax rate or whatever it is, the deferred tax balance brought forward, which you would have booked at whatever the local rate was, 28%, mm -hmm. is now capped for the purpose of this calculation at 15%. Mm -hmm. So you have to go away and find your deferred tax balances, then reverse them, 
reverse the portion of them up right. to the fifteen percent. And yeah. then there are other rules that say if you've got a deferred tax balance in relation to a liability that doesn't come due within five years, you may have to reverse those as well. There are a host of adjustments, um, some of which I'm not entirely clear. I understand the rationale behind the adjustment, but all of which will require a significant compliance exercise to get those numbers. Mm-hmm. Once you've got those numbers, the effect, you know, the, the tax number, the covered tax number, and the global net income number, uh, just a global globe income number, then you can calculate your effective tax mm-hmm. rate. If that comes out to 12%, then you know that your top-up percentage number is 3%. There is then one further adjustment before you work out the top-up tax. So assume you had a 1,000 of adjusted globe income and you had a 12% effective tax rate. You don't apply the 3% to a 1,000. You apply the 3% to a thousand minus the substance carve out. And the substance carve out ultimately is a a rule that says you get relief from the top up tax for 5% of your employee costs and 5% of your fixed asset cost, a tangible asset cost. There is a transitional rule which actually starts those numbers at 10 and 8% Mm -hmm. respectively and then over 10 years gets down to 5%, but ultimately you get a carve out, so you effectively take the globe income, you work out 5% of your employee cost, 5% of your fixed asset cost, uh, you blend that number and you take that number off the thousand, and let's assume that was a 200 number, I then have 800 left of what's called excess profit, and that 800 is what I apply the 3% to, to come up with the top-up tax number. So 800 times 3%, which I think is 24, Mm -hmm. would be the top-up tax number in that case. And then kind of going back to how this is allocated amongst the various jurisdictions. So effect, if, if again, if these rules hold, then it's January twenty or January first, twenty twenty-three. Yep. Then either the ultimate parent company would then have to apply, you know, rules. that that top-up tax, or an intermediary holding company yep. would have to apply that. And if there's neither of those, then generally the rules wouldn't apply or there wouldn't be an adjustment, right? But then as of January 1st, 2024, the U2PR kicks in. Yep. And then going back to my example with the UK and Germany and then undertaxed in, in China, then that undertax payment in China would then get allocated between the UK and Germany, I think, right, based on their employees and intangible assets. Yes, the pro rata. Uh, again, you add up all the jurisdictions that have implemented the UTPR rule, they collectively only jurisdictions that have implemented or included in that calculation, they collectively get the top-up tax allocated between them by a ratio that's partly made up of employees and partly made up of assets. Yeah, and, and your point on the data and the, 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 the calculation itself, which you've reminded me, is you're right, it's not that no. complicated, right? But it's how do you get access to all of this data and there may not, it may, first of all, it may not even be an issue of whether you have access to the data. You may not have done the, you don't well, have I, the data, the U.S. gap kind of legal entity. Yeah, I mean, it's numbers. not the same as, you know, when we've looked at other modeling exercises around things like U.S. tax reform, 
we've generally been able to say, well, we can model the impact of that by reference to the US tax return under the current rules and then adjust it for how the rules change. So there, the data is there to be mined, mm. and then you've got to write the rules that change the calculation on the data. Here, there are two, I think, distinct processes. What One is you've got to find the data in the first place, mm. which I think in most companies will not exist in the form that's required in order to do the calculation. Now, you could obviously take assumptions. You could you know, mm. try and take shortcuts. But at the end of the day, if you want to get a calculation that's going to stand up to scrutiny, and there is a filing requirement under these rules, albeit that's deferred out for a year and eight, 18 months after the mm. effective dates. But you're going to have to do that data gathering, which I think involves finding the source data and then applying a bunch of adjustments to that source data. And then you can run the calculation of, okay, now I've got the data, I can work out what my effective tax rate is, I can work out my substance-based carve-out, I can work out my top-up tax, and then I can work out how that is going to be collected uh, and when that would be collected, you know, either beginning one, one January 23 or beginning one January 24. Yeah, the data collection exercise for this reminds me a little bit of the book minimum tax as far as looking at the, the book numbers. In other words... Uh, items that may not be readily available or otherwise computed. And there seems to be just a general view amongst taxing authorities, I guess the OECD, but the U.S., that there just doesn't seem to be a lot of sympathy for multinationals um, about whether they have the data or not. No, I mean, I think there is an assumption um, built into this. And remembering the rules only apply to companies or multinational groups that are have greater than 750 million euros of revenue yeah, per annum. Mm -hmm. So they, they, they apply to, quotes unquote, big companies. Um, you know, there's plenty of companies with 750 million of revenues that don't make a lot of profit, depending on what the margin in their business is, right. who may not have the resources to do this. Even the very big companies that have the resources, it's still a huge compliance burden. You're effectively inventing a whole new set of books for every entity in your multinational group. That, that, that is a huge undertaking. And the book minimum tax in the US, you know, I, I, you know I'm not going to pretend that I'm a supporter of the calculation or otherwise, but at least it's done on a consolidated basis. Fair it's not enough. done by an entity by entity yeah. basis. Fair enough. You had mentioned, and I probably should have covered this earlier, that there are certain uh, entities that are excluded from from these rules. You had mentioned, first of all, you have to have 750 million euro total turnover. Your point is, it has nothing to do with margin. So right. if you're in a very low margin business, that's just that's total total yes. revenue. Yeah. And I think there are some other exclusions. Yeah, I don't get don't get your hopes up too much. I mean, um, governmental organisations are excluded, a governmental entity. Mm -hmm. So. In certain jurisdictions, there are entities that carry on business that are quasi-government institutions that they're excluded, and not-for-profit not organizations are excluded. Certain real estate investment trust REIT sort of structures are excluded, and certain investment fund structures are excluded. Even those are limited by reference to you know, only certain kinds of those. So it's not a huge series of carve-outs. Now, you know, one of the things that's up for discussion by the OECD Inclusive Framework this year is other carve-outs. 
And so there's some discussion around, you know, can we find a way to define certain jurisdictions that should never be thought out of as low effective tax rate? And how would you apply those filters with the hope that you can reduce the, the administrative burden? But I think that's going to be hard to do because they're very worried that, you know, jurisdictions can have low effective tax rates, even with a high statutory rate. Right. And and to that point, um, I, I think a number of countries, and the reason I give the example of China, is there are a number of countries that give incentives, right? And and we also think about there's some special rules with respect to amortization, yeah. um, for example, so that I think what's important for our listeners to understand is I think that we, a lot of us came about this just thinking like, well, who's got a statutory rate lower than 15? And right. that's, that's really not relevant. No, I mean, th- this is, uh, you know, over the last three weeks, you know, including over the Christmas break, you know, I've had a number of conversations with companies who have unusual fact profiles. And, you know, those unusual fact profiles aren't inappropriate. You know, they've been in a a, a structure or a business or an industry where a government has decided to incentivize that business by reference to the fiscal policy of that jurisdiction mm-hmm. to encourage that business. And everyone thought that was totally above board. Those incentives have largely been looked at by things like the the EU uh, Code of Conduct Group and the OECD Harmful Tax Practices Group. And everyone agrees they're appropriate incentives Mm -hmm. under those rules. Under these rules, to the extent they reduce the effective tax rate below 15, then those incentives are negated by the top-up tax. And I'm not sure that governments necessarily completely understand how far-reaching these rules are in undoing what I'm assuming they thought were sound government policy decisions to encourage investment. Yeah, so what comes to mind is in developed countries, various types of IP incentives right. and IP regimes. Patent boxes. Patent boxes, et cetera. And, and then for developing countries, you know, they have given all kinds of incentives, particularly as we think about manufacturing in Asia yeah. and elsewhere. And you know, this could be a significant detriment to those developing countries that are trying to attract foreign direct investment. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, again, the, the the stated purpose of these rules is to level the playing field and stop tax incentives driving mm-hmm. investment. Unfortunately, the stated objective of governments over the years has been to use tax incentives right. to drive investment. So the two, at some point, have to have a culture clash. Right. And, and I do wonder, kind of as an aside, like, will jurisdictions start to look at other non-tax types incentives? Because you can't, like, the competition for foreign direct investment is not going to uh, stop. I mean, that's clearly uh, that's clearly going to happen in, in some ways. It already is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Switzerland came out with an announcement today that they intend to raise the Swiss corporate rate to 15% in order to be compliant with these rules didn't exactly go into details of how the rest of the compliance was going to work mm. and whether they were going to implement income inclusion rules and all those sorts of things, but just said we're going to raise the rate to 15%. But came with a footnote said, we will continue to th- uh, to consider further ways to make Swiss an attractive investment location. So, you know, it's openly out there. Right. The OECD recognized that and actually said in one of their releases they will be policing the use of non-tax incentives. I'm not sure what that means, mm-hmm. but they will be policing it. Okay. 
So let's talk a little bit about, we, we've already referenced this a little bit about the U.S. Um, because we have a fork in the road here. And, and you had mentioned these Swiss proposals. It's, it's yeah. mid-January for, for, for those that are, are listening. And, and at this point, there is still significant uncertainty about what's going to happen with U.S. tax reform, specifically the Build Back Better plan, and even more specifically, whether we may move to a guilty country-by-country country regime. Yeah. And so maybe talk a little bit about what does it mean for U.S. MNCs if we have country by country guilty versus if we actually just keep with our existing blending regime? So, I mean, I think, you know, you've got to peel this back quite a long mm-hmm. way in terms of the, the journey we've been on. So, you know, think of it back to tax reform back in 2017. The U.S. introduced guilty, which by definition is a minimum tax regime. Now, that's what it was presented as to Congress. And we've had all the debates about whether expense allocation means it's not a a minimum tax regime. But fundamentally, it was proposed as a minimum Mm -hmm. tax regime, but calculated on a totally blended basis. The OECD came along with Pillar 2 and wanted to design the minimum tax regime. And they came up with a design you know, way back when, which largely is replicated in the moral rules now, that a minimum tax regime should operate on a jurisdictional basis, not on a worldwide blending basis. And that's the framework for the rules now. Now, if you go back to last March, or even after that, the OECD uh, messages publicly was that guilty in its form, in its current format they would have to find a way to make it coexist with the Pillar 2 rules. The implication of that was that guilty would be deemed to be an IR-compliant regime, albeit it clearly isn't the same as the the Pillar 2 calculation. And that was what I think most people were working on the theory of last March. Now, that's drifted quite significantly, and some of that, you know, at some level is US-driven, where... Yeah, you know, the, the the current Treasury obviously wanted to move to country by country guilty. I think as a starting point, they thought that the US guilty rules should be country by country and not on a blended basis. And effectively said that's what our proposals are. So when you got to the Green Book and all the proposals from even Wyden's proposals, which wasn't country by country, but effectively had the economic effect of country by country the U.S. proposals under Build Back Better or whatever the predecessor for that was over the last six months mm-hmm. were all moving to a country-by-country basis. And some of Treasury and the administration's rhetoric was we need to do that to make the U.S. consistent with Pillar 2, which actually wasn't the message we were getting from the OECD back mm-hmm. last March. But at whatever level, that's now moved on And now we have a situation where it seems very likely that the OECD and the EU will not regard guilty in its current format as an IR-compliant regime. Now, the OECD have reserved commentary on that. The EU directive, on the other hand, has language in it which sets out the criteria by which a regime could or could not be considered to be IR-compliant. And it specifically calls out that anything that's blending above and beyond jurisdictional blending is not a compliant IR. Mm -hmm. So the writing on the wall is if the U.S. doesn't uh, 
change guilty, then it's not an IAR compliant regime. What does that mean? That means that as of the 1st of January 2023, if you follow the OECD timetable, if the US owns its subsidiaries through an intermediate holding company in whole or in part, <clears throat> where that intermediate holding company jurisdiction has implemented an IIR. So for that, read, in theory, all of Europe, and in theory, the UK, at least by March of next year, then because the US has not implemented an IR compliant regime, the intermediate holding company would get to apply their IIR compliant regime to levy top-up tax. And, you know, the US will have applied guilty, but on a blended basis, there may be no top-up tax under guilty because your rate blended was okay. But on a jurisdictional basis under Pillar 2, there could well be top-up tax, which you would not otherwise be paying other than the intermediate jurisdiction implementing those rules. That's one January twenty three, so that's not very far away. No, um, you know, sounds but, like it though, but it's it's less than twelve months. It's less than twelve months, and you know, undoing structures and changing structures takes a lot of time, a lot of diligence. So I, I do think an immediate question for U.S. multinationals is, what is your holding company structure, and where where have you got jurisdictions that are likely to implement these rules by one January twenty three? and therefore will apply the rules in the absence of guilty becoming an IR compliant regime and then roll that forward to 1 January 24 and say what happens then when I've got an under-tax payment rule. Yeah, and I know one of the other kind of technical issues that's out there is that the top-up tax, so let's say guilty, we don't have country-by-country country guilty, we have a top-up tax. Well, whether the top-up, or if we don't have the IR-compliant regime, mm -hmm. the whether any guilty top-up tax, even at blending, whether whether the, the, the multinational would get credit, or like effectively the intermediary holding company would get credit for those guilty taxes that are paid up at the yeah. U.S. parent. And really, I think it determines whether if it's a qualified CFC tax regime, I think is the terminology. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very complicated analysis. I mean, it, in order for taxes of the U.S. that have been levied on the foreign operations under guilty to be creditable in that top-up tax regime, um, then the U.S. guilty regime needs to be deemed to be a substantially similar to a CFC regime. Mm -hmm. Now, you might think that's a slam dunk, and one level of me says clearly it should be. Right. Even if you thought it was, there are huge complications of how you allocate that tax because the U.S. guilty calculation being on a blended basis right, with tested losses and QBI, how you'd allocate the tax to a specific jurisdiction would be difficult. But leaving that to one side, it's worth pointing out that a similar worded rule exists in the hybrid rules whereby, you know, if you've got a jurisdiction making a payment to a CFC of the US, which would be a hybrid rule, there's a rule in there that says you turn off that hybrid denial if it's been picked up by a CFC regime. And two jurisdictions have gone on record as saying they don't think guilty mm -hmm. is a CFC regime, those being Australia and the UK. So, you know, it's not without any sort of controversy as to whether guilty, guilty taxes would get pushed down if you mm -hmm. were paying guilty taxes. 
So what about if the U.S., let's again kind of keep going down this road where there's no country by country guilty, build back better or whatever, its successor does not does not get enacted. It's very possible that as a result of whether it is amortization in the U.S., the foreign, the FIDI income, you know, other types of adjustments, whatever, that the U.S. book rate, if you will, or the U.S. rate may be below 15 percent. How, how would that? How does that work if the U.S. rate is potentially, if the U.S. effective rate for globe is below fifteen? Well, so that that is kind of that that's almost without reference to the changes to guilty, because whether guilty is a compliant regime or not, guilty never applies to the U.S. profits. Fair enough, uh, okay. and never applies to branches or disregarded entities held directly by the U.S. So all of those profits i.e. the U.S. consolidated group profits, including any flow-through profits from DEs or branches, are never covered by the guilty regime, and therefore they're never covered by an IIR regime. So it doesn't really matter whether guilty is compliant or not. Got it. What that means is, once under-tax payment rules are brought in, if the U.S. rate for whatever reasons, having done this incredibly complicated calculation with adjustments to deferred taxes, stripping out general business credits, restricting deferred tax assets in a number of different ways. If that rate gets below 15%, then once the other jurisdictions prevent under-tax payment rules, the other jurisdictions will be allowed to apply a top-up tax on the US profits under the under-tax payment rule. Now, there are provisions, there are proposals in the OECD paper to say you can resolve that by having a qualifying domestic top-up tax regime, which effectively says the country can apply a minimum tax Mm -hmm. on its own profits, and that would turn off the rule. And you might say, well, if Build Back Better passes, doesn't the book minimum tax do that? No. I mean, it does something like that, but it doesn't do it in the same formula calculations are set out in pillar two so you'd have to then get to the secondary debate was well does book minimum tax count as a qualifying domestic top-up tax regime and of course book minimum tax applies on a different set of filters right um, only certain, only very large companies are in the book minimum tax r- rules so it won't protect everyone anyway but even if you do apply a book minimum tax it's not clear that that would turn off the under tax payment rule so let's let's continue down this road as parade of horribles for mm-hmm. USMNCs if we do not have a, a build back better a mm-hmm. guilty compliant regime. And I appreciate I take your point that you know that that issue for US companies that have a below than fifteen percent kind of uh, globe effective rate mm-hmm. are, are in the soup whether or not we have a uh, a, a country by country. But we recently, last also during the Christmas holiday, received another you know a couple hundred pages of foreign tax credit finalized uh, regulations. One of the things that is in there, and that will be the subject of next week's podcast. So we're not going to dive okay, into. I, I am, I'm not going to try and steal Wade's thunder okay. next week. Yeah. So we'll, uh, we'll we'll be certainly talking about that next week. But one of the really important points that dovetail with this is this concept that was in the proposed rules of jurisdictional nexus and now attribution. Yeah. And so generally those rules require for creditability now kind of a new standard for foreign tax credit 
for foreign tax credit ability that the taxes have to have what was referred to in the proposal jurisdictional nexus now attribution to the country in yep. which those taxes are levied. Going back to the example with the UK and Germany imposing tax on those these China related earnings, I think my initial thought is that well those would not be creditable taxes that may otherwise fall within the guilty regime. But maybe talk a little bit about that if you've given any thought to that and the potential issue of really double and triple taxation. Right. So I mean I think it's hard to answer the question until we see the actual mechanics of how the rules are applied. Sure. But I, I you know if you go to the wording of the finalized regs on what is a creditable tax? Um, obviously, there's a lot of changes in that area, and Wade will get into that, obviously, in more detail. But the one that worries us is jurisdictional nexus, which has now been redefined as attributable to. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's not clear, to me at least, that if you have the U.S. owning an intermediate Holco, which owns a bunch of CFCs, and the intermediate Holco applies an IIR, it's not entirely clear to me that tax can be attributed to the income from the jurisdiction that it's come from. It's a top-up mm -hmm. tax. Right. Um, it's a little like guilty, but it's not exactly the same. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one question. Before you even get to, the, obviously, the more difficult question in your example of China, UK, and Germany, it's very hard to see how if UK is levying tax on the undertaxed income of China, how the UK tax mm -hmm. has is jurisdictionally related to the UK activities when clearly it's not, it's related to the China activities. Uh, and so those foreign tax credit rules, when you start applying them to how Pillar 2 is meant to be mechanically working, give a very real concern that if the foreign tax credit is finalised, they are, and they're not changed to reflect this new world order. And then we have these top-up taxes being applied by other jurisdictions other than the US, that those taxes, which will be real taxes, will not be credible from a US FTC perspective. So you could very easily get to a scenario where you're calculating the top-up tax under the Pillar 2 principles, you're going to pay more foreign tax, but you're still going to have a guilty top-up tax under the current mm. guilty regime because you won't get credits for those taxes. Now, that's less of a concern in a blended guilty world, a kind of worldwide blended guilty world, mm. but it's still a concern. There are still a lot of U.S. companies right. who are paying a top-up tax under current guilty rules who would not take kindly to the fact that their foreign tax burden has gone up, but somehow their creditable tax base for U.S. guilty purposes has not gone up because you don't get those credits. I think that's a very real concern. Yeah. Do you have any hope at all, Callum, that if Congress is unable to pass corporate tax reform, unable to get to a country by country, that if Treasury would come in and potentially make a mandatory high tax exception, for example, so everything that's at or above 15%, they say, is kind of is, is, is kicked out of guilty and that it's only low tax guilty is there that that would then be included but you're still blending but you're blending everything below let's say the 15 percent rate yeah. is there any hope that that could be considered iir compliant and try to avoid some of the soup that we may be in if, if it's not i mean i you know i think if you start from a position of logic rational and sanity you can clearly see how someone should be 
persuaded that if you're blending across jurisdictions, but the only blending that's going on is amongst jurisdictions that have less than 15% in the first place, then you're not effectively blending credits to reduce a tax burden. Mm -hmm. You're just blending for an ease of a calculation, to be honest. And therefore, the top-up tax economically should give you the same answer, leaving to one side that the guilty inclusion definition is based off US tax principles and pillar two is based off financial statement principles. So the base is a different number anyway. But the, the tax number in that scenario should be the same. The difficulty is gonna be, you know, by the time Treasury gets to that, you know, if they get to that, in the absence of Build Back Better, then probably the OECD may well have written their rules. The EU may well have actually agreed a directive and then you're having to deal with each jurisdiction saying, we've made this change, we'll explain it to you, now can you confirm the guilty is an IR compliant regime? Mm -hmm. I, I think there's a timing issue here. I, can, I, I completely buy the rational policy debate mm -hmm. there. You know, leave to one side whether we think any of this comes out of rational policy debate in the first place, but it, you know, leaving that to one side, you can get the economics to say that makes sense. The question is, how do you get people to change from whatever framework of rules they've written? Because if they've written something that says anything that is above jurisdictional blending is by definition not an IR compliant regime, then your proposal is still yeah, not an IR stuck. regime. So, so maybe I don't know. Yeah. I mean, so we'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, your timing point is, is a good one, just in, in how quickly, let's see what happens with Build Back Better, what Treasury would try to, to, to counteract if they can't get it. But so yeah, maybe here in, in conclusion. Yeah, maybe that's the other point, which is, you know, at one level, Build Back Better either coming to pass or being clear that it's not coming to pass as quickly as possible would help define the approach to the rest of the world. But for as long as it's a debate as to whether we're gonna get it or not, then the really, you can't really enter into a debate with the rest of the world right. about what to do with the rules. Right. So here in, in conclusion, because we're, we're, we're at time, what, what should companies be doing now? Well, I, I think, that, I mean, the obvious answer at one level is go away look at your numbers, start trying to do these calculations. Model, 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 it's it, a constant it, theme. It's gonna be model, model, model. Um, there are, I think, things that companies should think about trying to sort out with their structure before the potential effective date of the end of this year. Um, not, not necessarily to try and get around the rules, but to ensure you don't end up with double taxation under right. these rules, I think. At one level, that's the primary objective here, is not necessarily to say we found a magic way to make these rules not apply to us, because the construct of the OECD framework is very cleverly designed to ensure that actually it's very hard to mm -hmm. structure yourself out of the rules. You can't go to a jurisdiction as your ultimate parent entity just because it hasn't got an IR and say the rules aren't going to apply to me because of the under-tax payment mm, rules. Yeah, so the so they've, they've, they've really, the backstop is well designed from that mm. perspective. So I think it's really about making sure you haven't got foot faults in your structure, knowing where your low-tax entities are, uh, making sure you can clean up the balance sheets as necessary, deferred tax assets, etc. Um, 
There's some challenges around brought forward losses that you need to think through. There's some challenges around brought forward foreign tax credits you need to think through. So there's a whole bunch of, a list of things that need to be thought of, but it's hard to do that list without actually, first of all, trying to get to what are the numbers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so far I found it somewhat surprising how many, what you would think of as not low tax jurisdictions end up being you know, either on the margin or actually low taxed, having applied these various calculations. Right. And and to go back to the, the model, model, model point, like once you try to actually start doing the model, you realize that you don't have the appropriate data and it goes back to everything that we had discussed a little bit earlier. Right. So, yeah. well, Callum, always an insightful discussion. I, I wish I would bring you on to talk about maybe rosier topics, but uh, significant dark clouds coming in and the, the 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 point on double and triple taxation i think is obviously the most concerning for for me as a mm -hmm. as a practitioner and something we'll keep an eye on particularly as we study more of the foreign tax credit rules and then we understand how the the proposals actually layer in to to, to that so okay thanks for joining no problem so thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of cross-border tax talks thank you callum dewar pwc's integrated global structuring leader I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.